Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and you're listening to Café Scolé. Welcome to another podcast episode in which we seek to bring restful, contemplative learning back to our schools, homeschools, and lives. That is to say, to bring Scolé back to school. I'm here with two of my friends, Jolie Hodge and Jesse Hake. In this particular podcast, we want to explore the ways in which Scolé can be a reality in one's life, even when you're not seeking it. In other words, uh, we've all bumped into uh, undistracted time where we study something that is worthwhile, that transforms and refreshes us. Even as children, there have been times when we have, we have encountered this very human activity that so many thought was the highest human activity, scolé. And if you've been following this podcast, you know that scolé, ironically, is a Greek word that is the root word for our English word school. And there isn't often a lot of scolé in our schools. Undistracted time, contemplative and restful learning. Not that there shouldn't be any active learning. Of course, we need to learn skills, learn how to conduct experiments, do algebraic uh, equations, translate Latin, memorize vocabulary. There's so many things that we do that are very active when it comes to education. But the trouble is, often in education and schooling, it's almost completely active learning with no restful learning. In other words, there's not often a Sunday in our learning experience. There's not a Sabbath. So what if just one-seventh of what we did in our schooling and teaching involved restful learning? Okay, so here we are. I'm going to ask each of my guests to just give a brief biography of how they came to be an educator and a professional working in the educational world. And then I'm going to ask each of them to share maybe um, even a childhood experience or a, an experience when you were a student, when you encountered restful learning that was refreshing. So with me is uh, Jolie Hodge, as I mentioned, and Jesse Hake. I'll go to you first, Jolie. Tell us how you ended up becoming a teacher in, in brief, and then if you could segue to a time when you enjoyed restful learning. Sure. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you and your guests. Um, you have a lot to do with my story about how I came to classical education. Uh, you were the headmaster at a uh, local bricks and mortar school, if you recall. Um, I often joke that it was at the turn of the century back in 1999. Um, so I've been te teaching since the last century. <laughs> but uh, I was looking for an opportunity to get into education, and um, none of the education courses at the college where I was going to seem to really embody the kind of education that I wanted to really pursue. I was a 
history and political science major. And when you and I had talked about the school um, and about the, the classical school there, you emphasized that the education courses and certifications weren't what we were looking for. We were looking for passionate, lifelong educators who could appreciate the Western tradition and be um, encouraged uh, and teachable to um, go back and recover this this lost way of learning. And that was what really spoke to me. Um, and so I've been um, a classical educator since then and had um, many opportunities to grow. One of the first areas was the fact that the seventh grade class needed a logic teacher. And um, that, you know, logic being one of the core disciplines in the classical tradition where all of the other traditions kind of intersect with it, all the other disciplines uh, intersect with it, it gave me an opportunity to see just how broad and deep um, the pedagogy can be, um, the classical pedagogy can be, um, and all of the ways to kind of enjoy classical education through these different paradigms of grammar and logic and rhetoric. So um, mm-hmm. that's been that's been a lot of fun to kind of continue to pursue that over the many years. Um, an experience with Scolé, myself, so I grew up in Saudi Arabia uh, in the uh, early 80s, and I was going to an international school there and learning all the same subjects that everybody else was learning, math and science and history and literature. And all. Of, but um, I had one uh, unique, probably, leg up on most students, and that was that every year we had an opportunity to take a trip somewhere um, to come back home to the United States. And um, on our way home, my parents would plan different stops for us so that we, it wasn't just a direct flight from Saudi Arabia back to Pennsylvania, but we would stop and visit different parts of the world. And in many cases, they tried to coincide something that we were learning about in history with some stops that we would make on the way home. And so the year that I was studying, for example, ancient history, um, we had the opportunity to stop in Egypt and we went to Cairo and we stopped in Greece and we went to Athens and, you know, we stopped in England and I got to go and explore um, some of the English countryside as well. And um, so I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to name it as Scolé, but I had the content knowledge that was attributed to me through the school, um, through my, the active learning education that you had described. But then I had this opportunity to go and see and taste and touch and experience and smell and, um, listen to tour guides who were telling the stories afresh and make help, allowing me to make some of that connection. There were no tests, there were no quizzes, lots of opportunities to think deeply, to kind of assimilate and put it all together, have some delightful conversation around a good meal, um, experiencing the flavors of the, the country we're in, the culture and the customs. Um, that certainly is a, sort of an extreme case of <laughs> scolé, mm. um, but it it created that that heightened dimensioned learning that can only be found when the books are closed mm. to a certain degree, and mm-hmm. um, you're bringing with you your experiences to this new place mm. and sort of enjoying deeply in mm-hmm. you know, um, in a robu- very robust experiential sense. You're reminding me that uh, a lot of um, homeschooling families like to take tours and trips yeah. whenever they can for this purpose. That's right. And that apparently that can still be a part of one's education. Yeah. Can you remember a time uh, on one of these trips where when you were kind of mesmerized or just he- held in a kind of spell while you were viewing something, gazing at something or conversing about something? So when you stand at the foot of one of the great pyramids and the size of those rocks is, you know, you know, right in front of you. And then you realize 
how many of them there are. And pictures, I mean, pictures are, are, are wonderful and an experience, but when you're standing there, especially as a child and looking at them and seeing that they're two and a half, three person high mm-hmm. boulders. Um, and then, you know, my, my dad was an engineer. My mom was um, a, um, an English major. And so she was trying, she always tried to get us to experience things through the story of it, right? So we would, we would talk through the story and the narrative of what we were seeing experience. My father would also ask questions, you know, how do you think they got that top stone up there? You mm-hmm. know? Um, there's no mountainside here. They don't have cranes. You know, they, you know, how, how did this happen? And, um, you know, mm-hmm. Even just standing and, and, and having those kinds of questions, I, but that was probably one of, I mean, it's one of the seven wonders of the world mm-hmm. for a reason, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and its majesty in its size and scope. Um, but then we also had an opportunity to go inside the pyramids, which was also interesting. So to see them beyond just their external um, and to go in and the, how tight and narrow the passages were. And there's, there's a... a a lingering odor that is in the is in the passages and, and so forth. Um, it's it's musty. It's dark. There is no sunlight. Um, you know these were these were you know tombs. Obviously, you're breathing in dust from maybe five five millennia ago. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and all the germs. No, I wasn't too worried about that at the time. But um, but yeah, I mean, so the whole experience of it was captivating, and I can still see probably. Um, Probably imperfectly, given that it was through the, the, the eyes of a child and the decades that have since passed. But um, that that experience married with what I knew allowed me to really kind of explode with questions and the curiosity and um, looking for, you know, I was definitely in awe, you know, um, and then we could discover something new together. Um, but, you know... It, 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 it was such an extension beyond what mm-hmm. I could have experienced in a book. It sounds like, um, I love the fact that you use the word wonder. Of course, the, the, the pyramids are uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. But there's an element of wonder, is there not, to this idea of scole, something mm-hmm. that takes you kind of outside of yourself. Uh, when you're at wonder, you kind of forget yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and you're absorbed into this this thing that you want to possess and know. And as you are also pointing out, it seems that it led you to become eager for more knowledge. Mm-hmm. You yeah. said you used the word curious. Yeah. Did, did you go read some more about Egypt as a result? Oh, did absolutely. You, uh, yeah, well, um, and I think there's two, there's two things. One, I had, my, my parents did not have all the answers, nor did the guides, but they were guides in that sense mm-hmm. of like the... Um, you know, classical idea of a teacher that they could at least point to things and and raise questions, um, and we certainly. I mean, my my father didn't have an answer for how the top rock got to the top, but either necessarily, um, which could be helpful, could, not to always provide the bad answer, even if you have it, right? So that the student is is living with that wonder and and uh, you know curiosity for a while. Um, absolutely, and the, and there's something really. Um, I think is special about giving children the opportunity to, because they don't have the same inhibitions that an adult has to have to find that and rest on the answer. Um, and I, I do just remember there was a freedom that was there, not just because there weren't tests and assessments, but um, because I had no inhibitions about the fact that I was there to fully engage and to learn and to really and just enjoy and delight in it um, without any, um, and anything else that might have cluttered that experience mm-hmm. in some way. And I think that that probably, and I haven't talked to my parents about this, but I probably could, I could ask them if 
experiencing it with us as children in that kind of very um, innocent delightfulness that comes along with being a child, if that allowed them to appreciate it in ways that maybe they didn't expect, mm-hmm. um, I would imagine that the benefit really goes both ways to doing this with your children at a very young age and you know experiencing it. And I've seen that with my daughter as well, taking her to places and, mm-hmm. and, and seeing what captures her curiosity mm-hmm. um, and things mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have necessarily thought to, to be um, that we, we could have lingered and talked about but, but boy she she saw something that I didn't um, mm. and she tried to reason through it in her own way and led mm. to a delightful experience mm. as well boy you've opened up so many different interesting aspects of Scola this idea of gazing contemplation wonder curiosity uh, the childhood the, chi- the childlike way that uh, students often come to things with this uh, just openness to to see and understand. Um, you're listening to the Scolé Cafe podcast, and we're exploring Scolé. And uh, I'm here with uh, Jolie Hodge and Jesse Hake. And Jolie didn't mention this. I should mention this: that Jolie works with me here at Classical Academic Press. She's our vice president of marketing and sales and operations. She's been leading our online Scolé Academy. So we have an online academy named after this idea of Scolé, mm-hmm. trying to bring restful learning even to an online format. Um, and so Jolie's been a teacher for many years. She wrote a couple of logic books. Thank you for what you shared. Uh, and I'm going to move to Jesse now. Jesse is also a colleague here at the press, and he is also a vice president. He's the vice president of our pro- product development. He leads our editorial side, and he directs Classical U, our online teacher training platform. And I know that Jesse grew up. Uh, I, I know a little bit about both their stories. I don't. I'm really glad to hear about. <laughs> the, the pyramids of Egypt from Jolie because I hadn't heard that story before but I know a number of stories from, from Jesse's life um, he grew up in Taiwan spent I think 14 years am I right in Taiwan yes that's right and he had a number of uh, uh, adventuresome experiences in, in Taiwan but could you could you filter as you, as you think about your own childhood Jesse uh, give us a time when, when you were transfixed by something that, that caused you to be curious and wonder and study yeah, hearing um, Jolie's stories, it struck me that uh, there's an intentionality um, that is behind a lot of these experiences of wonder. Uh, there's a connection to schedule and, uh, and, and the intentionality of your parents in making this extra space between places, you know, as they're traveling when families are often under a lot of duress, um, to say we're going to stop somewhere and do an extra thing mm-hmm. and carve that out. Um, I was also blessed with parents who um, were both really educators. Um, I was homeschooled um, from grades four up through my graduation as a senior in high school and uh, also raised overseas, uh, as, as Chris has mentioned. And because of being homeschooled, the flexibility that that brought um, just gave all kinds of opportunities for school um, I would really go to the uh, family life routines, though, as kind of a starting place with um, reading out loud was a tremendous priority and something that we all just absolutely love to do. And the amount of time we invested reading out loud as a family was really extraordinary as I look back on it and uh, just gathered around listening to a story be read out loud and very in very... Um, 
understated ways or, you know, noticing the delight that everyone else was taking in something that was delighting you um, was, you know, it was just such a remarkable experience. Mm. I remember one um, story. My dad is is now, uh, he's a Presbyterian minister, but migrated from being a missionary into teaching literature um, at the college level over the course of his life and uh, is a literature professor, Patrick Henry. Um, but we were reading not a particularly uh, sophisticated book as a family. In one case, I don't remember what the book was, but it was not high literature. But some of the characters were really uh, in a very desperate situation, and my dad, um, at mealtime shortly after, was praying for them without realizing what he was doing. And, uh, and that was just a, a funny illustration of the, of the way that the whole family gets wrapped you know, in a story and the, the experience that that is together. Let's pray for Frodo and Sam that they yeah. might be able to make it through Mordor. It's exactly that type of thing that was going on. And we were all you know, snickering under our breath as our dad was praying. And then he realized as he heard us laughing what he had been doing. <laughs> He's also a bit of a, the quintessential absent-minded professor, as you can probably tell from that story in certain respects. But one other uh, example of school I, uh, I'll mention is um, from my own childhood is um, <clears throat> within the context of a family vacation. Um, we were with another family, and they uh, they wanted to go to uh, some amusement park rides at a water park in the area. But we had committed already before uh, the beginning of this day to stay on the beach together and to sort a huge pile of sand on a big white sheet into all the different um, colors and textures um, that we could find within each of the sand grains. And so we spent an entire day as a family sorting a pile of sand by color and texture. And the um, careful attention to one grain of sand at a time and then the arguments and debates over, you know, how many categories of color and texture should we have? Um, so we created, you know, maybe in the end, 15 or so piles by color and texture that we were sorting into. <clears throat> and there were some debates over individual grains of sand. But that collective kind of attention, uh, by the end of that day, we had a sense that we were sitting on a beach that was truly astounding. You know, the kinds of things that went into the sand lava rocks, bits of coral, bits of shell, um, other types of stone. Um, it just led to all this all this uh, conversation, but it was really an almost ridiculous investment of time you know, as a family, but um, it left an impression on, on all of us um, with regard to each other, with regard to where we were, um, God's, God's world. So um, that kind of intentionality, there's a kind of extravagance in that. Could you, both of you, address this intentionality or, as you put it, in another word you use, attention, the collective attention? It seems that a part of Scole is this ability to focus and to attend to something with this you know, kind of intentionality that is uh, different, um, more intense than our kind of everyday experience. Uh, as Jesse was sharing that last story, I've never spent that much time <laughs> categorizing sand. <laughs> oh, that sounds fascinating. Um, but the um, 
when when we lived in after we came back from Saudi, we lived in Virginia, and back behind our house, as part of our property, there was a creek that ran through, and my parents did not schedule us for everything that could have possibly scheduled the way that kids are very often overscheduled today, and so when it was time to go outside and play with or without a friend, um, I was supposed to go outside and find something to do, um, and I found I wandered down to that creek all the time, and there was a. Uh, hollowed out tree that had been hollowed out by lightning um, ages before um, and I that turned into my sort of imaginary palace of some kind um, and I gathered and collected things and went in and organized things in particular categories of whatever made sense to me as a child and you know they had different places inside this huge hollowed out trunk of this tree that I would go in and play in and it was my sort of space and time to explore and, um, you know, to, to make decisions about things and to, you know, try to make sense of what it was down there, um, whether it was, you know, rocks or, you know, skeletal remains of something or another or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but I had time is really the point. It was unscheduled time, and it was that undistracted time. Nobody, you know, not until I heard my mom calling for me for either lunch or dinner did I have to come back. And even then I had to kind of peel myself away from what I was doing. Could you describe, either of you, that that sense of timelessness that mm-hmm. sometimes is a part of this experiencing school A? Like, how many hours did you spend doing that, and, and, and how did how did you experience the passage of time or its, or its lack of it? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure I didn't have an awareness of it. I and I don't, I don't even remember being aware of the time, you know, going by mm-hmm. just long summer days and, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, just having just fun in my own little world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it really was as if the, the confines of, you know, the calendar and our man-made mm-hmm. time slots didn't really apply mm-hmm. in some ways, mm-hmm. but, but it will, it, that's the, I think not that that, that, that particular activity had long-term bearing. I didn't become a naturalist or anything mm-hmm. like that. But um, it fostered that um, that sense of me that that was a, that was a good mm-hmm. and that what I was doing was valuable and um, that undistracted time is something not to be shunned mm-hmm. or to scheduled into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think longingly of that. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it imprinted on me and sort of shaped and formed how I think about how I would like to spend time mm-hmm. now. I want my daughter mm-hmm. to have. Yeah, um, I'm reminded in a, a lot of different Christian traditions, some of the very old prayers um, in the liturgy, there's uh, a phrase that you'll come across that is um, set aside all earthly cares. So we're praying together that we would um, go into this kind of timeless um, communion with God uh, who is outside of time and uh, invites us in a mm-hmm. uh, way that you c- we can't really wrap our minds around uh, mm-hmm. into communion with him and therefore into and I think that happens uh, you know in prayer but mm-hmm. in all of life because of who we are uh, as God's uh, image bearers and, and uh, his children so that uh, and, and in childhood I think uh, we can go into those spaces uh, in play mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if it's Chesterton who says something about how offended children are sometimes when an adult 
uh, says something, interjects it into their playtime, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know sometimes the children will try to weave it into the narrative and make it disappear by becoming a part of their world. But if the adult's insisting on it uh, for whatever reason, it's quite jarring, you know, to mm-hmm. be brought out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as adults, this isn't something we should lose. Um, and and I think we all we all could easily imagine you know, times and places at different mm-hmm. parts of our lives where we do become engrossed in something in, in, a, in, in, in a sense, time. We escape time. Yes, I, I think we've all experienced that. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the church tradition because, uh, you know, the Eucharist in, is a time where uh, you should lay aside earthly cares and commune with Christ and the church. And that just seems to me, to me a, to be an appropriate call. You know, we, even the the idea of Sunday worship, this mm-hmm. setting aside this day, stopping work. Uh, so the Sabbath principle is there, and the communion principle is there. And so Scully seems to be related to that as this human longing to be united with something true, good, and beautiful, or the divine, in a way that is timeless, maybe because, as you point out, because it's divine and God himself is timeless. Mm-hmm. Well, this is really interesting. And for those of you listening, you know, we're beginning to explore the application of the idea of Scola. And so we're talking to Jesse Haik and Jolie Hodge about how they've experienced it as, as children, really. Mm-hmm. And you've used experiences first, which I just note is interesting. Uh, the pyramids of Giza uh, collecting sand and sorting sand at a beach. Um, so the natural world is one place where we enjoy school A. But as we close, could you guys um, give an example maybe of this happening in a conversation with another person or in the uh, reading of a book or the, the, the hearing of a, a presentation? Um, could be a, a lecture or a sermon, um, poetry reading. You know, when, can you think of some other instances where you've had a similar school A experience in those kind of categories? Well, there's a um, an ideal in prayer life where you would be praying without ceasing, right? Mm-hmm. Paul brings it up. And um, I do think there's a sense in which when you settle into any activity, there's a potential union between the active and the contemplative, mm-hmm. um, where if, if you're really able to be absorbed in the activity, um, you enter into a kind of contemplation of your own activity, uh, a contemplation of the thing in, with which you're engaging. So if you're reading, singing, um, there, there's a there's that kind of a space. And, mm-hmm. of course, those are the most delightful ways mm-hmm. to work, mm-hmm. to read a book and to really just be in that book, mm-hmm. you know, to be um, even working with someone stacking firewood and, and to almost be lost uh, mm-hmm. in the rhythm of the work uh, mm-hmm. with the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know because you're both readers and teachers. And by the way, I did mention that Jesse as well has been a classical educator for some time and an administrator, too. Um, I know that you have read books that have taken you away, uh, that have enabled you to escape time. Mm-hmm. Can you share an experience of something that you've read that, that did that for you? Well, as you ask these questions, I my my brain just can't quite figure out which one <laughs> to, to talk about. Um, That's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It just uh, I don't know if I can pick. You know, I've I've experienced this. You know, um, there have been 
uh, Lewis books, for example, the, the Great Divorce is one that we're actually all reading as a company right now um, over the next several months. But it's one that um, in my early adult life I picked up and I decided I was going to read it every year. Um, and that, that book, just because it, it requires that you both go into it and then come out of it and back into it and come back out of it and that, that processing of it just to be in the story. But then you have to, if you're really going to you know, appreciate the story, then you have to come out of it and experience it as, mm-hmm. as the reader looking into it with some examination of yourself. I, I think books that require that in and out um, transcendence mm-hmm. of the, 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 not, the narrative are, are places where I've, I've found that the most. And if I think about it, the experiences that I've had have also been that same rhythm of both going into the experience but then coming out of it and you know looking at it again in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, for me, is the scole of, of an exercise. Um, if, if it's ever just one or the other, it either becomes a task or it becomes just sort of a mental exercise. But the mm-hmm. scole is sort of, for me, the marrying of the two at the soul level, mm-hmm. um, where you, you find that, that joy and delight in, in your inner self. Um, and it's that marriage of the... The, the the outward expression and the sort of ethereal expression of it together mm. in some ways, mm. um, and so books that re- sort of require that of you, mm-hmm. like The Great Divorce, in, mm-hmm. in this case, is one place I've experienced that. You, you're you're calling to mind um, a book that my wife and I are reading, uh, George MacDonald's Lilith, and the uh, the Raven in Lilith uh, says at one point to. Mr. Vane, uh, that about regarding books, that the books books are um, a door in and a door out, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a good book, a good conversation, is kind of a doorway into something. Uh, Jesse used the word intentionality, like we're going going for something, but in the process of going and reaching for something, mm-hmm. we end up leaving ourselves mm-hmm. and going to some other place. And that somehow describes Scola as one, one aspect of Scola. I'm so glad that you brought that up. And maybe just to conclude, um, the word attention is from that Latin ad tenere, which means to reach for, you know, to be reach. Even the word tension, uh, you know, has this idea of something being pulled because you're reaching. Um, there's something about Scola that is, is, uh, intentional and attentional, but in the process, it's, it's it's relieving mm-hmm. and refreshing rather than creating tension um, rather than you know, it's it's an it's, it's escape it's that everything that the two of you but it was wonder it's curiosity so i hope those of you listening are are enjoying this kind of uh, our own kind of uh, traveling in to Skolé, maybe to, to go someplace else. Um, we'll continue this conversation um, in our next podcast with with Jolie and Jesse to explore more ways that Scully can be made practical for you as you're thinking about it. What we'll do on our next podcast is we'll ask these two to describe ways they've been able to bring um, the experience of Scully to their own students because they've been classical educators for quite some time. So they'll be thinking about some good examples of how, how that has happened. So thank you very much, Jesse and Jolie, for joining us today. And we'll look forward to being with you again at our next podcast. And thank you to those of you who have been listening to Skole Cafe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.